This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to be a black woman of Swiss nationality in Switzerland? In this episode, Kusiwa shares her stories of growing up in Zurich and working there as the first female black officer. Her story is also about her journey in better understanding and navigating herself in different social and professional contexts. I'm Fumi, this is Hashagar Racism, and this is the story of Kusiwa. I was born in Ghana, in Accra, when I was three years old. My family, basically my mom, migrated with me to Zurich, Switzerland, to another continent, to a very white community where I grew up. We were living at Long Street, so people who know Zurich uh, know also this area Back in the 90s, 80s, it was like the prostitution area. There was a lot of like gambling. So it's not a very, let's say, safe neighborhood to grow up for a child. But it was also the neighborhood with the highest number of migrants in Zurich. So it was obviously the place where my mom and I felt the most welcome and the most let's say, the closest to what we experienced maybe in Accra in terms of diversity. There were really people from all different backgrounds, nationalities. So I felt during that time, I didn't really stick out like my skin color or that we are Africans didn't really was a major deal. Kosiwa says that it wasn't until she entered her teenage years that she slowly started to realize the way people read and categorize her based on the color of her skin and gender. She shares two incidents from her teenage years. I was working during my teenage years in Coke. So it's like this food magazine store that sells nutrition, food, but also house equipment that you need. So I was working there as a cashier. And uh, I remember one day there was an older lady and she asked for a discount for a product that she wanted to buy. And well, the price was already fixed. I couldn't give her an additional discount. So I told her like, this is the price. I'm sorry, I can reduce it more. And she got really offended. And I remember when she passed by and she wanted to leave, she was just looking at me and said, oh, this is just another nigger. So I just translate it now in English, but in German, I mean, I understood it. And she was maybe also a bit confused or didn't realize that I heard her, first of all, and that I also exactly understood what she said and also spoke back. So I told her, like, what is your problem? Like, why are you talking to me like this? And she was just like waving her hand and leaving the store. So... I mean, that was kind of the start when I realized that people will not necessarily accept you. And I was uh, 16 at that time. And I had another experience where I was waiting in front of, you know, how in Zurich or in Switzerland in general, close to the lakes, they have like outdoor pools where you can go swimming in the lake. So I was waiting for some friends to enter the, um, the outdoor swimming pool, Mürtenke, it's called. And I was sitting there on a stone and a guy passed with his dog. He was a Doberman. And he was looking at me and said, hey, Blackie. Welcome to Switzerland. 
At first, didn't hear that he said Blackie. I just first heard "Welcome to Switzerland," and I was like, "Oh, he's so kind to me." And then he passed, and then he was looking back, and then he said, "You know that we pay everything for you, so you're basically like on social welfare here and everything." And then I realized, no, he, he wasn't actually being friendly. And then I looked at him closer, and then I saw that he was actually a neo-Nazi. And the neo-Nazis usually have these Doberman dogs. And that's the moment when I really got scared, when I was like, oh, my God, what I'm going to do if the dog attacks me, if he's deciding to walk back, because there was literally no one there because I was still waiting for my friends. And that was the moment where I started to realize, okay, I have to be also careful where I go, when I see people on the streets. And we are talking about Zurich, Switzerland. We are not talking about New York or London or these big cities where you know there's much more crime. So that was when I started to think about race, my background, my ethnicity, my name, and how it will impact and shape my experiences when I grew up in Switzerland, when I go into the professional field, and for the rest of my life. Kosiwa's experiences of growing up in Zurich, as well as her diverse interests in psychology, law, social and criminal justice and sports, led her to work in an area where she could contribute to change. After finishing high school, Kosiwa entered the police academy. She would end up becoming the first black female officer in Zurich. She would also see the way racism manifests itself in Switzerland. In 2009, I became the first black female police officer to work for the police in Zurich. And until today, we actually don't know if it's in whole Switzerland, because in Switzerland, they don't collect data on race and ethnicity. So even if you have a black police officer, let's say maybe in Lausanne or in Geneva, maybe there wasn't anyone or there was, but those stories are not shared. So that's why I realized in Switzerland, there's much more information about gender because that's really the focus in regards to diversity work that is being done in Switzerland now. But when it comes to ethnic diversity or racial diversity, there's really no statistics. So it's a very colorblind society. And when I was in the police, I really started also to realize that, okay, discrimination and racism, and let's say the lack of knowledge of Black Swiss people is really very prevalent because even though it is the police, it still also reflects part of the society. And there it's where I realized that for some Swiss people, words like the N word is still something that is used in a daily basis or really used to just refer to black people in general. And oftentimes when I confronted people or actually even when, when this, the police department actually made statements that this language is not acceptable within our organization, you still sometimes had police officers that felt that, well, that's how I grew up. That's the language I learned. And I think the shift in understanding that some words or languages you don't use anymore because our society is moving forward, is getting more modernized, is getting more progressive. There, in terms of race, there's still much more work that needs to be done than in regards to gender. For example, there's some words that we just don't say today towards women. Uh, degradatory words that we use for housewives or women in general. If you would say these terms in the public, people would look at you like, 
I mean, which century are you living in? But when it comes to race, terminologies that are offensive, there you still have to explain why it is offensive. There you still kind of have to make people want to change as well. And I think this is a big challenge that I've experienced in my work. However, over the years, and I say now, like, say over the last 15 years, there has been much more awareness about this within Swiss society, all the way to government level. And I would say that now Swiss society is much more open to look at what can we improve in terms of looking also more at different diversity categories beyond gender, which includes LGBTQ, race, which includes ethnicity, religion, disability, and age. However, it's still a long, uh, a longer process, and I would say a slower process in comparison to other countries in Europe. Kusiwa shares one particular incident where she saw the importance of what the concept of diversity, quote unquote, in the police force can mean in practice. There was a family argument, so the neighbors called the police, and we went there, and it was a black family, and we entered the apartment. And I remember when, I think it was the daughter, when she saw me, her face just was in disbelief. She got quiet immediately. She was just looking at me, looking at the other police officer. And all of a sudden, she became so calm and just was trusting me. I asked her some questions. I asked if she's fine. She collaborated peacefully we were able to have a good conversation to get all the information that we needed. In the end, it really turned out they, they had an argument. It wasn't anything violent. It was just, you know, a lot of things were going on in their life. And we were then able to leave after that. What this experience told me, and my colleague told me this also later in the car, he said that it was the first time that he went to a family fight which involved the black family, and the police entered, and there was no drama. There was no force he needed to use or loud voices. It was perfectly to collaborate, really the community policing that you tried to achieve with good communication skills. And he said that was really because I was there with a black female police officer. If it would have been two white police officers, the story would have looked very different. I share this story because for me, this shows that if there's diversity within the police, some situations can be really solved in a non-violent manner because the community or the people involved trust you. And I know that in this moment, when this lady saw me as a police officer, she was, okay, she's a woman, she looks like me, I know she's here to solve a situation and not give me any issues or problems and I can trust her. I can tell what's going on because she will understand. And I think this is the whole objective of police work and what we want in our society and how we want our police to function. And that's why I think it's so important to have more diversity within the police, to really have a police force that reflects the society that we are working in that they speak the different languages, they have the cultural skills and also the people approach. And 
just really being what the community wants. And it will be helpful for the police as well, because it will also take off a lot of stress because my colleague was so happy I was there. And also it helps the society, the community. And when we look at Swiss community, it's getting so diverse. There's about 34% with, with a migrant background. So we have a lot of diversity in Switzerland. So if we can also reflect this more in a sector that is so important for public safety, I think we we, we are achieving a lot. And uh, and I know that the police is working on it, but I, I also think we can we can improve much more and much more can be done. Kosiwa didn't end up staying in the police force for too long. She says one reason for this lied in the overall lack of support she felt from the police and the society she was serving. Wearing the uniform every morning was kind of a ritual process because you wear this uniform and it says big police, right? So you know, okay, you have a weapon and everything, a pepper spray, so you're equipped with everything that you would also need to protect yourself. But for me, it was always kind of, let's say sometimes a challenge where I felt, okay, now I'm going out. I'm already black <laughs> and I'm wearing a police uniform, so eyes will be on me. And it took me quite a long time to get comfortable, even to actually share that I'm a police officer for like, I would say the first year, I didn't tell really people that I'm a police officer because maybe also the stereotype people have against police officer, but also like within my own community, there's a lot of, oh, now you're going to the other side, you're supporting our enemies, let's say, let's say like that. But then after time, especially when I had the positive feedbacks that I heard from people, then I realized how important my role is here and how much I am able to contribute. But to really be honest, for me personally, uh, mentally, it was not a sustainable environment. But that had nothing to do uh, specifically only with the police. It was more in terms of how there was really a lack of diversity there that you always felt like you have to prove something, you, you have to be good, you, you never knew. Like sometimes when you're giving a ticket to someone and they didn't like that you are a black person, they call you the N-word. We went to, you know, like you heard the N-word being thrown at you a lot of times. And that's where I also realized that um, for the long term, it's not sustainable, not sustainable this environment, because... You needed a bit more support, I would say, from the work, from your employer. But because the race consciousness history is not that much there within Swiss society yet, you can't really demand it because you're the only one. Because and if you're the only one, there's like no data or statistics to prove that, okay, yeah, there needs to be more support. So it's really like your word against the other. After leaving the police academy, Kosiwa went to San Francisco in the U.S. to pursue her bachelor's degree. She says she needed to leave Switzerland not only to expand her experiences, but also because she felt the need to be in an environment where she felt more protected, accepted, and understood. It would be an eye-opening experience, inspiring her to launch her consultancy company, KeySecurix, when she went back to Switzerland. So I moved to San Francisco and my focus, my studies were really in race relations history and the criminal justice system specifically. 
and how being a person of color impacts your mental health, your professional achievements, the way how you personally see yourself within a, let's say, more white community and how you can navigate much better these spaces. And I had an amazing professor in San Francisco. And for me, just having the first time in my life a Black professor also an Asian professor was mind-blowing because I always had white professors, mainly also women, where I often felt it's just one perspective that I experienced. And I remember that during my gymnasium, I took a race relation history class about the civil rights movements in the U.S. So I had three professors. They were all white. I mean, they all did an amazing job, but it was just a different way of teaching. And they were talking about Martin Luther King and everything and all that. And I remember I had to write a term paper about it. and. I didn't really got a a good grade, let's say a decent grade, but I put a lot of also personal experience into it and my perception about race and racism in the US and how we can connect it to Switzerland. And I felt like the professors didn't really understood me. And when I had race relations history in the United States in San Francisco, like the professors loved my viewpoints, my analysis, loved my thinking, my critical and constructive feedbacks of how I see society and how we can improve and make societies more inclusive. And those professors had a Black background or an Asian American background. So they understood what I was talking about. And that's why my term papers was much better received from them. So that's why my education in the US was so positively shaped, because I was hearing the experiences of my professors myself. And to add a story here as well, because the one professor I had, he really looked like Barack Obama. And I remember when he told us that he loves to do sports. So he goes jogging every morning at like five o'clock in the morning. And he said that for his own security, he always wears a hat, which says army or military because he used to be in the army. And he uses this as a protection because when he goes jogging with an army hat, when the police stops, they know, okay, okay, he's kind of one of us. Like he's in the army, he's pro-police, we can connect. This is not a dog, so we're not controlling him. But if he's just jogging without any connection that is, let's say, to the army or to the police, he gets stopped more. So as a self-protection, he used to wear this hat. And I was like, wow, those are experiences that you would not necessarily hear from a teacher that is not a teacher of color. And that's why I realized this experience moving to the United States and learning about race really helped me to also defend myself better, let's say in my professional field, but also to understand better how others perceive me and how I can better navigate the spaces, specifically also in the area that I work, in the international sector. And this really helped me to better understand how I can defend my work and, yeah, trying to be more progressive thinking and challenge also the status quo in my personal work as well and be more outspoken, I would say, and not let's say, a bit shyer. Like, I'm still very Swiss, I would say, in Swiss community, a bit more 
you know, a bit an introvert, but actually to really stand up and to be diplomatic, but really say where you want to see the change. And I would say this helped me to launch Key Securex because I really launched it after my time in the U.S. when I started to study in Geneva at the Graduate Institute. And so I also purposely chose Geneva because Geneva is the most international city in Switzerland with the UN and all the other international organizations. And also the student population, I would say, is the most diverse that I've seen in any other Swiss universities. And that's where I really completely felt welcomed. And that's when I started actually to launch Key Securities because I wanted to continue the positive mindset I brought from the US. I learned at the Graduate Institute and found a consulting company that, that looks into race relations history and challenging the status quo and how can we as a society, Swiss society, international community, be more inclusive and more progressive and forward-thinking. Kosiwa says that through her work and interacting with Black women of other nationalities and backgrounds, she came to discover something important about herself and her own privileges. So now working in this sector that I'm working now, I always look at terminologies and I was looking specifically at the word privileged. So in my understanding, it is, was oftentimes privileged towards the non-minority group in, in the language, the, let's say the, the white community. And when I was at the Graduate Institute and I was doing my master's there, I mean, obviously, I have a Swiss passport, so I didn't have to worry about getting a job or a visa or just any other administrative things that you have to do if you're not a native in the country. And I remember I was applying for jobs in Geneva and one of my friends from the Graduate Institute who is from an African country said, well, I mean, you're black, yes, like us, but you have a Swiss passport, so you're still not the same like we are because you have the privilege, the passport privilege, to apply for any position that you want. You don't have to worry about the visa. And that was a really eye-opener because I then realized that, yes, what are my privileges? That, of course, I face challenges, but in the field of the international sector that I was in, what privileges do I have? And I'm seeing it now also in the work that I'm doing every day. Having a Swiss passport has allowed me and has opened me so many opportunities, which I would have not had if I just would have had my Ghana passport. I was able to go to the U.S. to get a visa easier, where some countries or some people with certain passports are not getting a visa that easy. I was able to come back to Switzerland and find a job. I can work anywhere within the European Union. So that's where I realized, okay, how can we as a community also learn from our own privileges and not be offended? Because sometimes in the work that I'm doing, when people hear the word privilege, they immediately identify with white privilege. And they question, does white privilege exist? Does privilege exist or not? And this, 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 this. And then people also get offended because they assume that if you have privilege, that means you didn't have to do anything for your work. Just everything was brought to you. You had it easy in your life. And uh, that's why you're privileged and you're where you are today, which is not necessarily true. 
Privilege, in my word, means that you have a certain advantage that helps you to get to resources where other people have to do much more work to get to these resources. And doing much more work, as we all know, is very tiring and can also lead that people give up. So you will be a step ahead of everyone else that doesn't have the easy access. And that's where I learned in my own advocacy that, yes, I am a black woman and I do experience uh, challenges based on my gender and my skin color, but I'm also very privileged Afro-Swiss woman. So it's also navigating these two worlds and acknowledging that you have these privileges and that can help you to actually understand better what challenges other communities are facing and what policies have to be implemented to be able to help these communities to be more successful in their work. And when it comes to visa, um, jobs, applications, everything else. And I think that is very important that we check our own privileges and how it has helped us to get where we are today and acknowledge that all the success that we are having is not only our own merit, is also because what we have been given from the society in terms of advantages that were just naturally given to us. And that's why it is very important to look at the word privilege not as something that is negative, but as something to understand why some people and communities have it easier than others. Kusiwa has the following to say about what she thinks it takes to be anti-racist. I would say the first step is being conscious about that we live in a society where people of color make different experiences. And being conscious about this, that these experiences impact their lives in a professional manner as well as in the public spaces. So when we have this consciousness and understanding that, yes, we have challenges within our community just based on their skin color or ethnicity will allow us to be open to be willing to learn what do we have to change to make sure that these communities don't experience these forms of discriminations? Because everything first starts with understanding. If I don't understand my counterpart, how can I help you then? So an anti-racist is someone that is conscious that, yes, there is inequality and discrimination and racism in our society and is willing and open to learn and hear the stories of people that experience forms of racism and not disregard these experiences. And I would say the best example, which is a very tragic example as well, is when we look at what happened in the U.S. with George Floyd and if there would have not been cameras. If this story would have been told to someone that this happened, a lot of people might think, no, I don't believe a police officer would do that. Like, I really don't believe that. But nowadays, we live in a society where everything is on social media. You can film it. Racism is being filmed today. And people are now aware of it. And they cannot disregard it. So if people tell you a story that might not be on social media, that might has not been filmed, but this story is true. People are not exaggerating. People are actually even trying to make the story not as exaggerated as how it was, just to make sure the counterpart feels comfortable enough to hear these tragic experiences. But people of color really make traumatic experiences that are sometimes almost unbelievable. But an anti-racist is conscious enough to understand that these stories are true. 
You can find more information about Kosiwa's consultancy firm on racism in Switzerland, as well as other articles, books, and videos. Kosiwa recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi in Hashigar Racism. See you in two weeks. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. Other music by Pete Morris, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Kosiwa for her time and energy in going down memory lane for us and sharing with us valuable reflections on this issue.